If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Romans chapter 6. We will shortly be reading in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. Oftentimes, people who are considered the most successful in this world are successful precisely because they live under this motto of never being satisfied. There's always more to achieve. There's always more to do. This is especially true when it comes to sports. Many of the greatest in sports have that greatness because they never seem satisfied with what they have. Nick Saban, who is the current coach of Alabama, is unprecedented in what he has accomplished over the past 15 or so years. He is turning 70 later in October, and he works at least 70 hours a week if he's like any normal head football coach of a college and likely works way more than that. He was asked one time in an interview, don't you ever get tired as what can only be considered an elderly man doing that much work? Don't you ever get tired? And his response was, get tired of what? Winning? What presses him forward is the fact that he is not satisfied. He always wants to win one more. People of this world can never actually be satisfied. There is no actual end to the cravings and the needs that they have. They can't be. There's always more to gain. There's always more to drink. There's always more to smoke. There's always more to experience. People of this world are driven by these things. And Christians can easily get caught up in that same sort of thinking. Oftentimes, Christians want the best of both worlds. We want to hold in our left hand salvation. We want to know that we will be ever bypassed in the pains and the sufferings of hell so that we can we can live eternally with God and in bliss and in happiness while at the same time saying, but can't we just have our pleasure here as well? Can't we just have our sin in the other hand? Can't we have our cake and eat it too? We want to be forgiven of sin all the while we live in sin. Already in the first century, Paul is battling that kind of thought. This is not an invention of modern America. This is not an invention of the West. It's not an invention of the 20th and the 21st century. Paul was battling this all the way back in the time when he wrote the book of Romans. Already in chapter 6, verse 1, he had to combat and take on those who might wonder aloud whether we, we should sin so that the grace of God can abound. As Paul said, God brought the law to increase the sin that his grace may be seen even above that. The response of sinful people is, well, maybe we could just sin all the more so that God's grace would be magnified. In 6.15, he asks a slightly different question. He says, are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God is merciful and he's gracious. He won't condemn us. Isn't that just a big blank check to say, go and live it up? Why, why can't we just go and live lives of sin and debauchery, having all the pleasures of the people of the world, knowing that God will be merciful and gracious to us? Paul's response to that is, by no means, which is probably tempered down from what it actually means. It's saying, hey, man, that is, that is a ridiculous question. That is an insane thing to ask. You don't understand what you're talking about. You can't live as sinners. Last week or two weeks ago, Paul argued that you are not just sinners anymore, but you are saints, those who have been bound to Christ in both his death and his resurrection. You are not what you once were. And while you might still sin, you are saints to the Lord. What he will argue this week is you better start living like it. Let us read 
from Romans 6, 15 through 23, how we ought to live now. Paul writes there, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the perfect and inerrant word of our God. As we consider this text today, let us first consider that saints live as fervent servants of the Lord. Salvation is not something that is just in the future. You have not been handed salvation, and all the perks and all the benefits of salvation are set aside for you, waiting for you to come into the inheritance of them. The benefits of salvation occur occur not just then, but also now. Our holiness, our righteousness, our ability to abstain from sin are indeed part and parcel of the benefits of salvation. And Paul is saying they are now available to you. He says, if you live like a slave of sin, you will get the results of sin. Sin leads to death. So if you plan on living like that, what are you expecting to happen? It is the end of the road upon which you walk. If you keep walking, that's where you end up. If you get on I-75 going south and you drive and you drive and you drive and you drive, you're going to end up eventually in Tampa and then you're going to crawl across Florida and you're going to get really close to Miami. And while I'm not trying to say that that's hell, I'm also not saying that that's maybe not where you wanted to go. If you're trying to go to Oregon, that's not the right road to take. But that's where you end up. If you continue on a road that leads to death, death is where you will get. You'll notice how humble we have to be in considering these verses. We like to think that we're masters and commanders of our own lives, that we're the ones piloting the ship. But Paul makes it very clear. You are servants of one or the other. You have a master. Choose wisely. You're not in control of what you do. You are not God's standing above all of the incidents of the world. Rather, you serve something. And if you choose to serve over sin, it will rule over you. God chose us even while we were slaves to sin, even while we were ruled over by sin, even while we were forced to do its bidding, forced to strive for it, to plead for it, to find its end. But God saved us through the work of Jesus Christ, and we are no longer held as slaves to sin. We can now be slaves to righteousness, to be pressed into the service of righteousness 
which Paul happily says leads to life. We should, for just a second, consider that word slave. The word slave is not a happy word in America for very good reasons. It's difficult to understand exactly how we should handle the word when it comes to Scripture. Because immediately, once we say the word slave, the idea of chattel, 19th century American slavery, comes into our head. And that colors, in one way or another, the way we read passages like this where we are told to be slaves. The worst-case scenario is it colors the way we think of American slavery and make it less atrocious than it actually was. So let's think for just a moment what it might be for the Bible to call us slaves. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and concern yourself with where the Scriptures speak of slavery and how slaves were to be handled at that time, you could go to Exodus 21, you could go to Leviticus 25, and what you would find is that slavery was there actually to provide help and security for the people of Israel. So if you had two men, you had Amos and you had Jeremiah, and Amos has has had a couple of bad business decisions, he's got quite a bit of debt, but he does have a farm and he's going to try and make a banner crop this year to pay off some of it. But it turns out that by the Lord's providence, he gets sick this year and the weather hasn't been great. And he's going to come up short. Not only will he not be able to pay off his lenders, but he is looking at the fact that his family might starve if he doesn't get help. And so he goes to Jeremiah and he says, Jeremiah, I'm poor. I need a considerable amount of help. Let me be your slave or let me be your servant. Jeremiah can take him on. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells Jeremiah that he is likely responsible to take him on as a brother. You are to take him on pay his debts. He will work for you. So the idea of him being a servant is there to help both Jeremiah and Amos. It helps Jeremiah because he knows that he will get work out of Amos. Amos isn't going to be able to skirt out of this. He is a servant and a slave to him. He is indentured to Jeremiah, but it helps Amos because Jeremiah, who is in a better financial position, will pay for his family, will feed his family, will make his life secure. At the end of seven years, Amos is to go free. Whether or not Amos has actually in his labor made up for the work that, that, or his work has actually made up for the, the price of what Jeremiah has done for him is irrespective. Seven years, he's done. And he is free to go. We are in somewhat of the same boat. We have worked ourselves into a horrible situation. We are sick and we are poor and we will not survive without help. And Christ has come And he has paid the debt that we owed. And now, while we toil on this earth, we are in his service, gladly and happily been redeemed by him, that we might live. And yes, there will come a day when we are relieved from that, when we enter into the rest of God, where he might look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant, where our labor comes to an end. That year of Jubilee is not yet for us. And while we are here, we are to be fervent servants of the Lord, working for the one who has redeemed us, not thinking that we ever pay him back for what he has done, but working nevertheless. Paul knew this well. He speaks of the work that he did in one of the last books that he wrote to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, he talks about the fact that he has endured everything for the sake of the elect. For the sake of the body of Jesus Christ, Paul has had hardship and he has been pressed upon him and he has worked hard 
so that the elect might come to know Jesus Christ and be built up in him. In 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says that he's fought the good fight and he's finished the race and he's kept the faith. The idea for Paul is that his labor is coming to an end. But while he is here, he will work for the Lord. Let us do the same. Let us run well the race that is before us. Let us fight the fight well for the Lord. Let us labor hard. The day might be coming where we will be released from that service, but while we live and breathe, we are in that service for the Lord. Paul knows, I think, that he's providing an analogy for us particularly that is hard to live under. So when you look at verse 19 and he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Natural limitations is probably not quite literal enough for this. He says, I'm, I'm speaking in these human ways. I'm giving you this analogy, this metaphor, because of the weakness of your flesh. That is what Paul seems to be saying, is you've got this sort of binary choice that you get to make once, right? Because you, you don't, with this particular analogy, get to be slaves of Jesus one day and then say, well, no, I'm going to go serve him on Tuesday, but I'll come back on Wednesday and Thursday. But I'm a little bit, Friday's coming up and I'd like to be you know, free to do my sin thing then. So, you know, you don't get to choose, right? So the, the metaphor only works if you, like, hitch yourself to one and stay there forever. And what he's saying is, I understand that that's not precisely what's going to happen to you. I know that. If, if he were using something of a modern analogy, it might be more of like a light switch. There are times when you will live in the light. When you will walk in the light, you will speak of the light, you will stand in the light of Jesus Christ and you will be attached to it and you will know what is good and right and true and righteousness will be the fruit and the work that you do. But because of your sinful limitations, because of the weakness of your flesh while you live here on the earth, your flesh will often want to go over to that switch and turn it off so that you might live in the darkness and do the work of the darkness. What Paul is saying is, I urge you, keep the light on. Attach yourself as servants to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do his work, do his bidding, do the things that he has called upon you to do. Do them fervently. Do them with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Live as fervent servants of the Lord. Secondly, saints live under faithful standards. Saints live under faithful standards. Verse 17, Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, from the very affections, from the very desires of who you are. You have not been compelled God didn't drag you here by the nape of the neck, but you honestly and earnestly desired to become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching with which you were, to which you were committed. Standard of teaching is probably best to be understood simply as traditions. These are the traditions of the church, the traditions that the Lord has given. Cultures, families, nations have traditions. And typically what happens is those traditions are passed down from one generation to the next, for the next generation to keep, to be committed to, to carry on, to be faithful to, be faithful to the traditions. Paul can talk something like this. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he talks about passing on to them the tradition of the central importance of the gospel. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But here, here, you'll notice if you read carefully, it is not the tradition being handed to us, but rather it is us by the work of God being given to the tradition. We don't keep the tradition. The tradition keeps us. And every church has traditions. They have small little local traditions. They've got small ways of handling themselves week in and week out and year in and year out. All of them do. You don't have to be Roman Catholic and have a very set and staunch liturgy to understand that traditions play a role in every single church. You can go to the lowest of low churches that want to be anti-traditional. They'll even say, hey, we're not your traditional church, and they'll say it kind of proudly. Listen, that church has tradition. If they start their church by dimming the lights, they say, we want to, have, we want to kind of have a worship set, a praise set at the beginning where the band's going to play. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be lit, as the kids say. We're going to have a little fog machine in the front. We're going to have a pastor who sits on a stool with his leg up so you know he's pretty hip. And he's going to make some, some kind of comedic statements at the beginning. And, and he's certainly not going to be wearing a suit. And, and you're going to have, literally, I was at a church where they had couches that you could sit on. I don't trust you people sitting on those cushions, frankly. I don't know if I can keep you awake for the whole thing. I certainly wouldn't put you in a couch, right? That's immediate sleep on a Sunday morning. When that pastor leaves... In five years, ten years, are they going to get somebody like me? Are they going to reach out and say, what we want is we want a guy who's a little bit more staunch, a little bit, a little bit stiffer. We want a guy who wears a suit. Maybe his wife can play the organ for us while we sing some traditional hymns and sit on really hard pews. That's what we want. Of course we're not going to hire somebody like that. You know why? Because they've got a tradition of not doing that. Traditions are traditions. It's a matter of having the good ones. What Paul is talking here is not about these local, small traditions. What he is talking about is the most fundamental traditions that can be handed over to us. Paul has in mind here the tradition of doctrine and practice. I want to focus on the second of those. It is the teaching of what we believe. Yes, it is doctrine. But it is also the teaching of how we are to act, of what we are to do. Matthew 28, 20 sets the precedent for this. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The teaching of doctrine is not an end in itself. It cannot be. And if it is, we have lost the right traditions. The teaching of doctrine is there so that you might learn to obey all that Jesus Christ has commanded you to do. The teaching of right doctrines is to make an impact in your life so that you would walk in holiness and in righteousness before the Lord. Even here in Paul's passage, although honestly he's not being terribly explicit with anything, it is hard to believe that he just has doctrine in mind here when he's talking about the traditions you've been handed over to. After all, he is spending a lot of time talking about actions, talking about righteousness. Even later on, he's going to talk about what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? It's hard to believe that those things are just doctrines. Those things are actions. Those things are the things that you did. He says, you've been handed over to better things to do. Somehow, in some way, the importance 
of telling people not just what they are to believe, but what they are to do has been lost. Go to a church website that thinks like us. They will have a huge section that says, what we believe. I don't think I've found one that says, what we do. It matters a lot. You don't have to go to a church like ours, by the way. You can go to our website. We have a section that says, what we believe, but we do not have one that says, what we do. And what we do, if they filled that in, would likely just be, well, here's our worship service. Here's our Sunday school. Here's, here's how we build and make disciples. We're a Nine Marks church. Love Nine Marks. Nothing wrong with Nine Marks. I thought about this this week, and I was like, you know, let's go and let's, let's look at what those Nine Marks are. Nine Marks is a, is a ministry that is made to, to kind of say, these are the marks of a healthy church. This is what a healthy church ought to look like. I think that that's right and good and true. We could build a monastery here. Build walls to keep people out and to keep you in. We could have a self-sustaining culture here of just believers, just members of this church. And there is only one mark of the church that they mention for healthiness that would ever require you going outside the walls of this church. And that is just to do evangelism. And in the original book that Mark Dever wrote, he didn't even write that evangelism was a mark of the church, the healthy church. He wrote that understanding evangelism correctly was the mark of a healthy church. It's all interior. There's nothing about being people who do good things out in the world about being people who actually enact social reform and doing helpful things for people who are poor and sick and suffering. We oftentimes think that being holy and righteous are either internal or nearly internal to us. It's about what we think and what we believe and how we speak. How many times have you honestly asked yourself, am I doing the good that Christ would have me do? Ephesians 2.10 makes this the very pinnacle and end of salvation. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Here, now, not in heaven, here, now. That God has prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. Friends, the tradition that we've been handed over to, the standards that we've been given over to, is more than just doctrine. The care of the poor is our tradition. Literally, hospitals were made because Christians made them. The care of the sick is our tradition. The care of the vulnerable is our tradition. The care of the weak is ours. That has been handed to us. And, and please, don't misunderstand me. It hasn't been handed to us just through church history. It's not just because the Cappadocian fathers had this good idea during a famine to build the first hospital complex. Although they did, praise be to God. It wasn't handed to us because people in the church got sidetracked and then they just kind of kept doing it. They got distracted from the gospel, but they kept doing the social stuff. It was built into the very nature of the gospel. Listen to the words of your Lord. It's a lengthy passage, but it's Jesus, so we shouldn't cut him off. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates, separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, Lord, no, confess him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick and in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But, and notice the language here, the righteous into eternal life. The same kind of language that Paul is using. Who are the righteous? They are not those who simply confess the Lord Jesus Christ by Jesus' own admission. They are those who do the will of his Father. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but who one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Do you think that you can just practice correctly? Do you th or do you think that you can just believe correctly and have good doctrine and check that box of it and consider yourself okay? Paul says you're wrong. Jesus says you're wrong. The tradition that has been handed to us is not just one of doctrine, but of work. It's not just tradition from Jesus. It finds its way all the way throughout the New Testament. Go back and listen to Pastor Richard's sermons from the book of James. Almost the entirety of the book is calling for you to do what God has said you should do. Probably the most amazing passage in this regard comes from one small verse that seems utterly out of place in Paul. Paul has been having trouble within the church in Jerusalem. He's been hearing that, that maybe he's, he's working in vain. He's been telling people, hey, there is one gospel. We all walk together in one gospel. So I'm going out and I'm preaching the gospel, but maybe, maybe Jerusalem's not with me on this. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to talk to the three pillars. I'm going to talk to James and John and Peter. And he goes before him and he says, this is the gospel that I preach. This is what I'm doing out in the wide world with the Gentiles. They listen to him, and they say, Amen, brother, you keep up the good work. Go and be on your way. This is the same gospel that Paul has said, if anyone preaches to you a gospel different than this, let him be accursed. The same gospel, the priority of first importance, Paul says, this is what you have to believe. He gets two steps out the door, and all three of them stop him, and they say, by the way, 
Remember the poor. Which is an astonishing thing for them to say, given that he has just talked about the gospel. I'm preaching the gospel. No, no, no. You can't forget the poor. And more phenomenal than that, Paul records that for the Galatians and then says the following, the very thing I was eager to do. The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ has saved us from our sin. And the gospel is the doing of good work. There isn't a difference. Walking in righteousness and doing what God has commanded us to do is part and parcel of the gospel. It's not being woke. It's not social justice or justice or any of that. It's simply being faithful to the work that God has put before us and the word that he has called us to obey. It is nothing more than that. It is, by the way, the very thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. When God saw us pitiable, naked, wretched, and heading toward death, he did not send his son to us to preach alone. But he came and he healed and he fed and he made water into wine and he raised the dead. Ultimately, he went to his death to give us eternal life. Not simply to proclaim things to us, but to accomplish things for us. Let us, then, bear witness to faithful standards that we have been handed over to. This is our tradition. Let us do good so that God might receive glory, not just in preaching Christ, which is necessary and important, not just in good doctrine, which I don't want to minimize at all, but also in doing the works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Saints, live for that. Thirdly, saints also live for fruitful sanctification. Saints live for fruitful sanctification. Without getting into sort of the convoluted history and philosophy of positive and negative freedom, it's clear that Paul here views freedom in negative terms. And I don't mean that he views them in bad terms, but he means freedom here is defined as that which you don't have to do. Notice he says in verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So that when you were in the service of sin, you were not in the service of righteousness. You didn't have to obey righteousness. You didn't have to do what righteousness called you to do. You were free from it. You were separate from it. You didn't have to obey it. But now, he says, now if you are Free from sin, you have to be slaves to righteousness. Paul then asks them a very simple question, which is worth us pondering this morning. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, look at your life. Look at the way in which you lived and the very things that were happening to you. And ask yourself, were those things good things? Do I want that? That fruit was wretched and horrible. All of us realize that. Every single person who's come to Jesus Christ knows that. We know that because we've come to Christ. Why did you come to Christ? Because you saw the brokenness and the barrenness of your life? Because you saw the worthlessness of of trusting in transitory things? Because you realized that one day you were going to die and face judgment and you felt the weight of your sin upon you? At some level, you have come to Christ because you saw the worthlessness of the past life that you've lived. You saw the worthlessness of the, the, the outcome of the life that you were living. And you came to Christ to change that for you. 
Paul says, so, if that's the case, why? If you came to Christ because you know the worthlessness of sin, why would you return there? Like a dog that returns to his vomit. I love scripture. I couldn't get away with saying this if it weren't in scripture. No one would like me for it. If a, like a dog returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Friends, do you want to return to your vomit? If you came to Christ because you saw in him something better, you saw something more glorious, you saw something worthy of your time and your affection, why live in sin? Paul's saying, you are ashamed of those things. You know, you know the worthlessness of them. Why would you go back and lick those things? Don't be a fool. It doesn't take much looking at unbelievers' lives to see that they are filled with chaos and misery, with distrust and dysfunction, with emptiness and anger. Is that the kind of life that you want to live? Is that where you want to be? Those things are not of righteousness. Why play around with it? Paul says, attach yourself to righteousness. The end of those things, oh, the end of those things is nothing but death. And we are now freed from those things. Just as we were bound to sin, we are now free from that. What Paul is saying here is, is kind of the counter to being bound. If you are bound to sin, you are free from Jesus. If you're bound to Jesus, you're free from sin. You cannot serve two masters. From this binding to Christ, what we get is fruitful sanctification. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. I love the analogy of fruit. It's a wonderful thing. Paul talks about fruit negatively. It's one of the only times in the New Testament that, that fruit is ever spoken of negatively. Fruit is almost always a good thing, which is quite interesting given how this whole thing started back in Genesis 3, but that's a, a comment for another time. Fruit is wonderful. It's sweet and it's lovely and it's desirable. This is the idea. This should be something that you desire. But the metaphor works in a number of different ways. Realize that when apples produce apples, or when apple trees produce apples, right, they don't produce them for themselves. The apple tree, I don't know if you knew this, doesn't eat the apples, right? Humans come along and eat the apples. Pigs might eat the apples that fall. Other animals might come along and eat the apples. But the apples are not for the apple tree. Your fruit is not for yourself. It is for others. The other benefit that it gets is that it creates more apple trees. The reason why apples are produced from apple trees is so that animals will come along, take of it, eat it, and then spread seeds elsewhere so that other apple trees will grow. This is the whole purpose of doing good work. The fruit that you have in your life is for others so that they would see the goodness of the fruit that you produce and want that fruit in their own lives. It's exactly what Jesus gets at when he talks about the city on a hill. He says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Your good works are for others. That fruit is for others so that other trees and the righteousness of God might grow. This production of fruit is nothing less than our sanctification. It is our holiness. The more, the more we are given over to Christ, the more we are given over to doing the things of Christ, the more we become set aside for him and his work. That is holiness. And the end of that, the completion of that, is nothing less than eternal life for us. Not that we have earned it. It is a gift of God, as Paul makes very clear. But nevertheless, that is essentially what happens in heaven when Christ will one day, in completion, remove this flesh from you, give you an immaculate and immortal body which will not be tempted to sin anymore. He will leave you in perfect holiness, able to stand before his Father forever. Friends, if it's good enough for heaven, it's good enough here. We say, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let it be so. Set yourselves as a city on a hill. Do not hide your light under a bushel, but shine forward. Do good things, for this is the good and gracious will of God for you. This is righteousness. Do not be lured by the desires of the flesh, friends, or the lies of the devil, in thinking that sin is fine, simply because you live under the the law of grace and not the law of the law. You know the worthlessness of sin. You ought to know the beauty of holiness. You know the tradition that God has placed you in. You know the good that Christ has wrought in your own lives. So let us live in righteousness and produce the fruit that Christ longs to see among his people as it gives honor and glory to his name. Paul ends this entire passage with his most famous verse, for the wages of sin is death. The whole idea of the wages of sin there is is taken from soldier terminology. They're mercenaries. Mercenaries are purchased by generals to fight for them. They are to do what that general says. They are then paid wages back from it. Sin has purchased you. It has called you over. It has lured you over. And it wants you to do its bidding. And the wages that it will pay out is nothing but death. It is only an abject fool who runs into death. And it is also done only by those whom sin has power and authority over. But, Paul says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died to pay our debt. Jesus died to buy our freedom. And in his great power, he has not just made it available to us, but he has actually given it to us so that we might live lives of righteousness and holiness. Not just a personal holiness, but a holiness like Jesus that radiates outward. So let us walk in faithfulness and righteousness, as we will soon sing. For through Christ we die to death to sin and all its folly, but glorified we will rise to live eternally, for Christ is risen indeed. In a moment, let us stand and sing, but as for now, let us pray. Father, let us be holy, for you are holy. As a people called by your name, let us rightly and truly picture you to a lost world. Let the picture of your kingdom, embodied here at Crossway, be a light set out in the darkness, so that all might see our good works and praise our Father who is in heaven. Help us to cast aside our sin, which clings so closely to us, and run in freedom and righteousness the race that has been set before us. Help us to do these things, Father, for our good 
and for your glory. Amen.